Coming up, what an excellent day for protesting. Well, howdy folks, and welcome to Minute 15 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I am Keenan Diaz. And I'm Andy Nelson. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. And yes, once again, folks, we have Andy Nelson with us. His voice might sound familiar if you listen to the Marvel Movie Minute show on the True Story FM network. Andy has also done an episode of The Exorcist in his other show, The Next Reel, and I highly recommend you go and check that out. Welcome back, Andy. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, if you go to thenextreel.com, you can just search for The Exorcist. You can find that episode there. Uh, and you can learn more about Marvel Movie Minute at marvelmovieminute.com. So check those out. Uh, I, you know, lots of movie conversations. Yay. Awesome. Okay. So our minute opens when our AD yells, action, Chris. And it ends quite appropriately with him shouting, <laughs> okay, cut. That's a wrap. I mean, seriously, how perfect is that? It's almost <laughs> as if they knew that one day, 50 years later, a bunch of chuckleheads would be making a podcast that examines their movie minute by minute. <laughs> but yeah, let's go back to the beginning of this minute. The AD yells, action. And Chris sort of has this look that I only caught because I'm watching this thing under a microscope. It's right after the AD yells action. The camera goes back to her and she's licking her lips and her face is tense like she's about to dive into cold water. Um, And that's when she starts running into the scene. And so we have this scene, this scene within a scene. And I am confused as to Mm. what this scene is about. Um, The book says it is a musical comedy, quote, musical comedy of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington uh, with an added subplot dealing with campus insurrections. I feel like this is supposed to be funny. That's Um, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay. I I, I feel like he's doing a thing like they did in Gremlins 2, where it's like, now Casablanca in full color with a happier ending. Um, (laughs) So I feel like if I knew Mr. Smith goes to Washington, I would know that it being made into a musical comedy is ridiculous, like Mm -hmm. a musical comedy remake of uh, Casablanca, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So so I'm assuming that's the joke. Um, Keenan, I feel like you could tell us a little bit more about uh, this movie. About Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's one of my very favorite movies, actually. Oh, great movie. Yeah. But it would be, you know, one of the, um, at this point, I guess, by far the most famous movie set in Washington, D.C. Um, maybe now you might say All the President's Men, or maybe now you'd say The Exorcist. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so that would be p- part of the joke. But yeah, it's one of the it's one of the great movies. Frank Capra directed it. Um, you might know uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is a movie about Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Stewart, who is... Um, uh, the junior senator from a place like Tennessee, they never say what state this is that we're in because it's a corrupt senator who runs it. And he's basically a Boy Scout leader. And they um, they appoint him because they'll think that he's he just doesn't know how Washington works and he won't notice all the graft and corruption that they have. They just need him to fill out the term. Um, and he gets to Washington and loves it. And he's so idealistic. And um, if Chris was in a musical remake of this, I mean, the only female lead, the only major female character in the movie at all would be... Um, Gene Arthur's character, who's a newspaper reporter who is sort of um, following Mr. Smith around and kind of making fun of him. And, and you know, not realize, you know, he doesn't realize that he's being taken advantage of. And then they fall in love and she is infected by his um, his Capra-esque love of America. Interesting. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, but I guess the joke is probably um, more about another movie from 1939. So oh. 1939 is like... Um, the the year that uh, classic movie lovers tend to say is like the best year in in the movies 
So this is uh, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, which are the most famous uh, movies right. from this era. And they're both from the same year by the same director. And then we have uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Wuthering Heights with Laurence Olivier and Stagecoach by John Ford and Ninochka and Dark Victory and Gunga Din and Bo Jest and uh, on a dark, yeah, the all, Roaring Twenties, yeah. the Roaring Twenties, and um, the Women and uh, Young Mr. Lincoln. Yeah, people tend to think of like this is the peak of studio filmmaking. But one of the films that comes out then is Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Okay. Um, and Goodbye, Mr. Chips had just been turned by the time that Blatty's writing this had just been turned into a musical that is usually derided as as one of the stupidest things that uh, that Hollywood <laughs> has ever done is to make a musical version of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. It's and that's that's about a teacher is what that one's like over right, like right. thirty oh, years. Oh yeah, it's a very uh, um, very much kind of a life story as he's you know, becoming a teacher and inspiring his students sort of thing. Yeah. And there's, um, there's one kid, there's a child actor who keeps, they keep using to play, um, like the new student and like, cause he's around for like 40 years. And so they keep using this one kid actor who's like, hello, Mr. Chips. And it's it's like, Oh, here we go again with a new batch of kids. Yeah. It's the cloud Atlas kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so this, this remake of Goodbye, Mr. Chips was, um, uh, you know, part of this 1960s attempt from the studios because they were they were in this really precarious place economically where they had to spend a lot of money in order to get audiences um, back to the theaters because it was mm. this huge period of decline starting from um, 1946 to 1972. There was each year the box office take of America would go down like mm-hmm. every single year. And so the studios found that the only way to uh, to get audiences back in was to make these hugely expensive movies um, mm. and that were four quadrants, as Andy was talking about before, like for, for families and for young people and for women and for men and everybody. Um, and sometimes they worked like My Fair Lady or The Sound mm-hmm. of Music or Mary Poppins. And sometimes they were these huge disasters, um, one of which was um, uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and also movies like Star. They tend to be big musicals that um, really weren't for anybody in particular. Yeah, it's... I think there's also an interesting element. I mean, I, aside from the way the the book describes it, I also think there's an interesting element that they're putting in here that feels very much of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, uh, you know, 1973. So, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, protests and everything going on with Vietnam and everything. And so it feels like, I mean, Mr. Smith certainly is a political film. You know, you definitely mm-hmm. have that, even if it is very Capra-esque and everything. And and so I think there's an interesting element, like if there is that aspect of it about like an an optimistic person in a situation coming to, you know, trying to change the system, I think there's also that element that they're throwing in of the youth and the protests. And I mean, you can see it on all the, the signs that everybody's holding up, like get the military off the campus, all this sort of stuff. It feels very much like they're, very specifically pinpointing the times in which the story is made and the way that people are reacting. And I think there's an interesting element to that here. Yeah. Ah, that is okay. Both of those things make so much more, uh, more sense. Um, so Keenan, you're, you're kind of talking about how, uh, in the book, at least perhaps Blatty is making a commentary on, uh, the Hollywood machine trying to yeah, make kind something, of the, the stupidity of, <laughs> yeah, right. Something as ridiculous as a, as a musical comedy of Mr. Smith goes to yeah, Washington. Gremlin would watch. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, what's next? A musical comedy of the exorcist. <laughs> oh dear. Isn't that re- repossessed? <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> we're not musical. But. We've been trying to avoid yet. Yeah, <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, it is funny. Like I have a lot of friends, and, and unless you probably know them out in LA yeah. too, who ha- who do these um, unauthorized musical parodies nowadays. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I have a friend who's in an unauthorized musical parody of Friends right now, um, of Bridesmaids, and they have to like label them as parodies so they don't get sued. But they're not really parodies. They're just doing they're just doing Bridesmaids, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to like um, oh, what's called the Evil Dead musical, which I think is actually very good um that that is a parody but they have to say it's a parody but that you know that um the the version that i went and saw um you know when you're in the first couple of rows there's the splash zone like if you were seeing shamu at SeaWorld with all the blood they warn you of that and they like give you ponchos or sell you ponchos <laughs> but so the exodus musical that might that might be coming out someday <laughs> there's a, there's also an interesting element to what chris is saying or chris's character Wow, is saying here, which is all about the system and, you know, working within the system and trying to convince these students who are really ready for this insurrection to, you know, to work with the system and try finding a way to kind of make things happen in through like through means that aren't necessarily going to, you know, tear the building down. And I think there's an interesting aspect to her journey in the story about working within the system and finding the right system to work within to help to help her daughter. So I think there is an interesting uh, kind of thematic connection to what she's saying here in this particular scene of the movie within the movie to, um, you know, the, what she is going to be doing, because I mean, you know, the Catholic system wasn't her system at all. Right. Here she is now having to trust the system in order to, uh, you know, save her daughter. Oh, yeah, I when like we first uh, like later on, I, I often feel like this tension of her even like addressing the priest as father, like the first time she says that, like she's just so not used to, yeah, um, the Catholic way, or, or again, she might be an atheist. I, I guess it's sort of up for for debate. I think now. I think she is yeah. supposed to be in the in the book at least, just completely yeah. an atheist. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it is it is a little. Um, it is what she's saying here is, uh, you know, conservative. Yeah, I get what you're saying with working within the system. It's more conservative than a lot of the yeah, young people yeah. in the audience would have been. Um, uh, but this is one of those. Um, the extras become strangely enough one of these four quadrant pictures. So I was talking about the box office take from 1946 going down every year to 1972. We usually point out the success of the Godfather, right. Being a new type of event movie that is not, um, that is not squeaky clean, like the sound of music or Mary Poppins. That is actually, um, that's actually quite relevant to the time. And then the exorcist and jaws and star Wars being the blockbusters of that era. Um, so, so in some ways the exorcist is, is, is reaching out to not only the kind of young people who would go to see, um, more politically conscious movies of the time, like MASH or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so in some ways, it's like trying to have it both ways, potentially, if you're talking about this, like strictly as an economic standpoint, like Chris's character, the movie, the character within the movie. Wait, wait, how, how do you say it? Chris's character that she's playing in this movie within the movie, right? right, right yeah, <laughs> yeah is, Chris's is character as opposed to right? Ellen's character. <laughs> or as opposed to Ellen's character, right, is more conservative at the very least. And and she's, uh, for all everything we can tell, she's the hero of this movie and not the villain that she's right. Yes. Yes. Okay. That, okay. That makes a lot more sense. Um, and thank you guys. Cause I was, I was really trying, uh, to see if there, there was something in there to connect it with the story of the exorcist. Uh, we talked about this, yeah. Keenan, you mentioned the, the, what was it? The Carmen coincidence? The Carmen coincidence. That's yeah. Roger Ebert's term for it. Right. 
Right, where the book or the movie that characters are looking at is thematically linked to uh, the story that they're in. Yeah, and I like Andy's interpretation that it does have something to do with it. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm really glad we were able to find that. Because when you're watching it minute by minute, right, you're trying to read everybody's signs right. <laughs> and their little, um, <laughs> right. their little acronyms that they have on their protest signs. Um, right, right. It was also making me think of, um, you know, uh, uh, Andy was talking about Vietnam, but also I know it's related, but like the Kent State, the Kent State shootings, which oh, was the sure. National oh. Guard, right, uh, shooting st- uh, student protesters, unarmed, uh, nonviolent student protesters, and they were um, they were shot on a college campus in Ohio. So that seems a little relevant here. Mm, yeah. Um, and I did have some some notes on Vietnam, but I think both of you guys beautifully uh, kind of like covered all of that. So now my question is, do you guys think like for Friedkin, do you think it's enough? Like he'd be okay with us thinking that this is like a Vietnam thing or um, like what you were saying, what was what was the name of it? The, the shooting? Uh, the Kent State shooting. Kent State. The Kent State shootings. Um, because either way, like, you know, whether it's a musical comedy remake of, you know, some iconic movie or a movie about the evils of the war in Vietnam or about school shootings, um, you know, those those don't have much to do with this story. Although I have heard this film mentioned in conjunction with Vietnam in terms of when it was released and the the sort of um, conscience of America is sort of in this like, wait, are, are we the devils kind of way? I always find that a fascinating exploration. And oftentimes I find that I, I don't think about it often enough with films about like, what is the time that in which this was released? Like how, how is, what is, the, what are the zeitgeist of the times really saying about, uh, what films are coming out and yeah, I mean, you can look at it like what were the films coming out after September 11th and, and you know, what, what, how things shift with different politics. And everything. Right. It's, you can I actually, yeah. uh, sorry, you can actually see a difference in like the Harry Potter series um, sure. where, yeah. So the Harry Potter books are written before September 11th, uh, Harry Potter one, two, three, four, and Harry Potter five is the first book written after September 11th. And that one becomes about um, this tyrannical new, um, new uh, headmistress, if you will, in Melda Sutton's character who comes in and is now um, priding security over over um, privacy. So, I mean, you see a really clear delineation in there. And that just happens to be one of these, you know, natural experiments, as an economist would say, like, like, this is, you know, this lineup yeah. that wasn't planned. So even if JK Rowling isn't um, consciously thinking about it, you know, the movies after that, or the books and movies after that are, are very much of the time. Yeah, if we can talk about Vietnam for a little bit, um, Hollywood didn't make a lot of movies about Vietnam directly. Um, so the first Vietnam movie is the green berets with John Wayne, and it is a very popular film. John Wayne, uh, by some measures, the biggest movie star of all time. Uh, but on, you know, the left and on, uh, in younger circles, they hated that movie. They thought it was just disgusting to make this movie about this very, um, uh, very un-World War II-like war, Vietnam, and and to just pretend that it was like a good war, like World War II, that was a little bit like, you know, oh, the Vietnamese are evil and they're awful and and we are the right one with the cowboys going in and, and um, doing all that. So besides that, um, Hollywood tried to avoid it. So you think of MASH as this anti-Vietnam War movie, but it's actually set during the Korean War. Um, but everybody at the time, you know, so, sort of read between the lines, say, this this doesn't look or feel like the Korean War, This is this is Vietnam. But we don't get other Vietnam uh, Vietnam War films until um, after the war is done, really. Yeah, it was a much more complex, uh, probably because of the complexities. And it was easier during World War II to make, you know, raw, raw America mm-hmm. movies because it right. felt so much more black and white. And I think there was such conflict uh, during Vietnam uh, internally that it made it hard to want to sell something in any direct way at that time. Right. 
Yeah, so we have some World War II movies in um, in the seventies, like say Slaughterhouse Five, which is more of like you know, even though that is textually about World War II, the audience reads it as about Vietnam because it is morally gray um, and it is it is um, not about heroes. You start getting things like Coming Home mm-hmm. as Vietnam stories. Maybe I, I I can't speak to if it's before any real Vietnamese War films, mm-hmm. but certainly like that is the sort of story that you get about like. You know, now we're looking at broken soldiers and what did this war do to people? Yeah, and those are those are released a couple years after um, yeah, America right. had pulled out. So it's like, yeah. okay, now that we like we're not touching it while we're still at war. It's still a really fraught, um, a really fraught area, right? Um, Jane Fonda, as we said in the previous episode, turned down The Exorcist because it was too commercial, and she wanted to make movies like the ones that she was making with her husband in France that were um, that were anti-capitalist in their nature. She comes back for movies like Coming Home, um, yeah. you know, but it takes it takes until after the war is already finished and you know so yes those movies are brave like coming home and the deer hunter um but you know it was almost impossible for them to do it during the war like back then it was um it would seem as un-american to protest the war you know in some circles so jane fonda um you know my father still um seethes and and just foams at the (laughs) mouth when you mention jane fonda um to even mention like oh jane fonda's on this new you know silly show called grace and frankie with lily tomlin he just can't help but but telling these um these myths about what jane fonda did during the vietnam war and her protest there right so interesting yeah yeah so uh guys i really tried to find anything else uh to talk about in this minute um aside from karis because i want to save (laughs) karis's intro for when we really meet him later um and i i do appreciate like you guys came uh to this uh episode with so much stuff so thank you so much um but damn there is a lot of karis in this minute Mm -hmm. um and so i think what we're gonna do um we're gonna do it this way uh chris doesn't know him yet Mm -hmm. and we the audience have not met him yet. However, like Chris, we have seen him. We have noticed him. And so I'm going to speak to what Chris sees. Uh, Before she knows his name, she sees him. She picks him out of the crowd. It's right when Burke uh, utters that obscenity that releases the tension and gets everyone to laugh. Chris notices this priest in the crowd and she's worried that he might have heard uh, Burke's swearing. Mm -hmm. Um, So she lingers on him um, and it says, quote, dark, rugged face like a boxer's chipped in his 40s, something sad about the eyes, something pained and yet warm and reassuring as they fastened onto hers. He'd heard. He was smiling. He glanced at his watch and moved away. So we know from this that, yes, he's a real priest. He's not one of those actors. Um, we also learned that he's a, he's a cool priest. He's not uptight. He has a sense of humor. He laughs when, when Bert makes the joke, right? And he and Chris see each other. They exchange this look and then he moves away. Uh, she sees him one more time in a, a little later as uh, he's walking away, quote, walking in the distance, despondent, head lowered, a lone black cloud in search of the rain. Mm. I love that dis- uh, description. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty much what we see here as he walks away from the movie set. Just this sad, lonely guy, this lone rain cloud. Um, our AD yells, OK, cut. That's a wrap. Uh, we get about seven seconds of Chris walking down the university steps toward us, all done with the day's filming. And indeed, that is a wrap uh, for us as well. Gentlemen, is there anything else we want to talk about in this minute? 
Yeah, I actually do. So it's really great that Andy's going to do a No Country for Old Men um, podcast soon. Is that right, Andy? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Did you not announce that? Okay. It, has, it hasn't been announced, but <laughs> oh, it's, I'm so it's sorry. fine. It, it, okay. We it can be announced right here. <laughs> I, I, the on-air and off-air life is blurring uh, to me. I'm sorry. Um, but I was talking a lot about that with the idea that we have um, three different versions of a main character. We, we, we sort of lump these things together, main character, hero, protagonist. And No Country for Old Men is this movie that, that very clearly... Um, um, splits those three roles out. Um, and in The Exorcist, we sort of have something similar, right? Chris is sort of the main character. We're, we're, we're experiencing a lot of the, um, the the Catholic Church through her. She's our audience surrogate, if you will. Um, the movie is over when Chris's story is over, not when the other two's story is over. Marin is sort of our hero. He's someone who we can look up to and is sort of more mythic than the others. And uh, Karis is this character who is um, somewhat of the protagonist, right? Like he's, he's going out and, and making these things happen and, and uh, driving the plot forward. And we do this really cool thing in this minute where Chris is on the megaphone looking out and we have this really wide shot of um, of the uh, the campus and we have the slow zoom in that is is one of the ways that we say like okay not only is this priest um, a real character like we are sort of even transferring the mantle of main character to him for a little bit right because the shot is so is so um, it's so noticeable that we are doing this long mechanical zoom as opposed to just a cut to him or um, or a physical camera movement which tends to be less noticeable to audiences. It's yeah, it's a great director tool that Friedkin uses here to kind of give us that shift of perspective. And uh, because it's not even really designed in a way, I mean, like the way that Blatty wrote it in the book, where it's it's Chris noticing him walking away. It's really right. us noticing him walk away. It's really yes. kind of yeah. outside the scope of the characters. And it's it's that God perspective. If you want to go into kind of like the Hitchcockian way of looking at mm-hmm. the film, this is Friedkin telling us we're going to now uh, we want you to notice him because this is going to be a prominent character moving forward. Yeah, these really long zooms um, are, and so I'm talking about the zoom. We're changing the focal length of the of the lens, so it's not the ca- the camera's not actually moving. Sometimes people who are new to film studies or film students have trouble differentiating them, uh, but we tend to say that like a zoom feels more mechanical or more noticeable, a little bit colder. Um, and these types of things, this 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 type of really super long zoom had not really been um, available even technologically uh, before the mid 1960s. So you start seeing them in major motion pictures and things like the earliest ones I can remember in The Graduate from 67, the Mike Nichols movie, where we have a similar shot like this, where we see Benjamin all the hell the way over the other side of the campus quad, and we're zooming rather than having the camera like move closer to him. Um, So it's again, it's like, this film technology that's invented and you're like, okay, well, what can we do with it? Because filmmakers aren't trained necessarily to use it before its existence, right? So, uh, so we start seeing people use them, sometimes abusing them all in one big clump. But, but I do like the way that we use them here. We have another long zoom like this in our, um, in our shot that we've seen before of Father Marin, um, walking through a lot of the, uh, the abandoned temple and just makes him feel very alone and very small. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it's very different from like a trucking shot. This would be a very right. difficult trucking shot to do. I mean, it, with all the people and everything. I mean, I guess you could have a huge jib arm, mm-hmm. which we kind of see them using in the context of the movie within the movie, right. but still like a big jib that would kind of swing over everybody to emphasize him. But it's not, it's not really that either, you know? And, and I suppose nowadays with, you know, post panic room, you could have a Fincher esque, you know, CG mm-hmm. shot of us flying over everything to him. <laughs> but I, I, there are times where I think that the zoom is, uh, still very effective and um you know i mean there was a point where suddenly the zoom really fell out of fashion because it was so overused by so many people 
But then you see somebody like Stanley Kubrick use it in Eyes Wide Shut. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, that's how you can use a zoom still incredibly effectively. And and now I think when you see zooms in modern filmmaking, ideally it's with filmmakers who you know have a better handle on on how to use it in a, in a way that works in context of the film. Right. Yeah. yeah. Folks, I think that is it. Gentlemen, is there anything else we want to talk about in this minute? No, filmmaking and war and Jane Fonda. No, I think we got it all. Lots of good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. And Andy, are you thinking what we're thinking? I am indeed. All right, folks. Until next time, the the power power of gremlins compels you. 